I let my Gmail inbox just go this weekend. I wanted to see just how much junk accumulated in just three days. Do you want to guess how many emails? Interesting experiment. I really, I couldn't, I don't know if I could guess because it's going to be so individualized, but I mean, it must be at least a dozen or 20, something in that range. No, no, no. Come on. Much, much, much higher. Oh, oh, really? It was over 100 in just one weekend? Well over 100. I got about 210 emails in three days. Uh, that explains so much because my inbox is a disaster and it just feels like it's overwhelming every time, even with the different tabs in Gmail. I don't actually have those enabled. I just, uh, I just raw dog it and just, uh, let everything come in at the top and deal with it. Get there. the chronological list. Yeah. yeah. So I let it go for a few days. I had an unbelievable amount of email. And what I noticed was there was, because I could see it all in front of me, there were five or six repeat offenders that sent me at least one, if not two emails per day. So I just went through and did a few manual click, 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 unsubscribe, unsubscribe. And then I started looking for a service that would do it. Like, uh, was it unroll.me? I think is what it's called. There must be a better way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea behind unroll.me is it gives you a cleaner inbox and, you know, they filter your email for you. There are other services that do a similar thing. But the problem with that, obviously, is you have to give them full access to your inbox, which I don't know about you. I'm already uncomfortable with Google having that, let alone random company. What is scanning my inbox in it? So I came across a project on uh, GitHub called Just Jake Gmail Unsubscribe. We'll put it a link in the show notes. I had mixed success with this thing. It kind of worked. It kind of didn't. Uh, It got me about half the way there. The issue with it is that email marketers have become sneaky mother effers at the moment. You know, they call it dark patterns. They have dark UI patterns that make it intentionally hard or nigh impossible to unsubscribe. It's even got a term now in the industry. Yeah. Unsubscribables. (laughs) (laughs) What's frustrating is that a lot of these unsubscribe buttons, you know, There's a fairly standard pattern in most emails from marketing. You scroll to the bottom. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny little word that says unsubscribe or manage preferences. And then you go to another page and you either have to type your email in or you have to unclick a bunch of boxes and then realize the one at the bottom says unsubscribe from all. Check that box and then press submit. Uh, Basically, the, the problem is when it requires anything other than just a click of a single interaction, that's that's where the problem comes. So. I just thought I'd make you aware of this uh, unsubscribe project. It's pretty cool. I found it useful. I thought you might too. Yeah, I mean, even if it only cuts down on half, at least it's a private script. That's yes. something. Yes, exactly. It's all private. It's all local. Uh, is this a good time to announce our new mailing list? That we're no. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sign up to our <laughs> newsletter, please. Yeah, right. It does feel like it. But no, uh, I actually watched the Home Assistant release, so that way you don't have to. It, they're long. They they try to make them about two hours or so. But it is getting really, really, really exciting what's happening with their voice effort. So I wanted to check in because they've now reached what they call Chapter 3, and they're just beginning Chapter 4. And with Chapter 3 of the Year of the Voice... Uh, They've done something that I think is going to be a massive enabler for me in actually using their local voice assistant system. 
Uh, they have on the Android versions of the Home Assistant app enabled the ability to set assist from Home Assistant as your default digital assistant on Android. So, you know, most Android phones have a way to activate their Google Assistant or whatever the Samsung one is or whatever. Squeeze the phone, do a swipe, whatever. What do you mean you don't like Bixby? Yeah, Bixby, that's right. You'll hurt his feelings. <laughs> that's what it is. I was thinking it was Gigsby or something. It's so silly, right? But Bixby. in Android, you can choose the assistant. And if you choose the home assistant, now when you trigger it, however you do trigger it, uh, you can just talk directly to your home assistant. And if you have Whisper and Piper set up, all of the processing can be done entirely locally for voice commands. If you're a Nebukasa subscriber, you can also use the Nebukasa cloud, which is insanely fast because they they take it as you speak. So they're transcribing as you speak the words and then wait for you to stop. Now, they also can detect when you stop and then finish that transcription and then execute the command because sending the text back is really quick. So even if you use Nebukasa cloud, it's really fast. And the built in assistant lets you choose multiple home assistant instances. So I can say if I want to control the studio, if I want to control Lady Jupes, and it lets you do multiple voice backends. So you could have one that's on the cloud. You could have one that's local only, which maybe that'd be a little slower if you got a Raspberry Pi. Or you could do one that's different language. Like I'm going to have one set up that's local and is in Spanish for the wife and kids because they're learning Spanish. And why not have all of the voice commands in Spanish available for them? It's a really good idea. It's like Duolingo, but it actually has real world consequences. And if you have an Android uh, watch, like Wear, they've added the ability to invoke voice assistant commands on the watch. So you can just press down the crown, say your command, and Home Assistant will execute it, which is really nice. That's pretty cool, especially given that you daily drive an Android phone, and yet you still wear an Apple Watch, right? Yeah, mostly because I hold down the button and I give it voice commands and it executes it on Home Assistant. <laughs> it's that and iMessage. But for me, because I am on Graphene OS, I don't really use Google Assistant. So I was kind of assistantless. You can actually install Google Assistant if you're a maniac, but I just decided not to. Um, but now I have something that fills that spot, and I love it. it it's perfect for me. Because 99% of the time I use those assistants just for controlling Home Assistant. Um, and with Piper and Whisper, Piper is the text-to-speech system created by Nebuka, so they, they brought a developer on. You could, in theory, run it on a Raspberry Pi, but if you put it on an x86 system and the faster the x86 system, the faster it can process the voice commands. But they have they have that in Whisper and they can auto-detect each other with this protocol that they've come up with. And so you could run the back ends on a different box. Like I can have the processing on an x86 box, but Home Assistant's on an ARM system. And um, they've added the ability now for Piper to make announcements. So in automations, you can have the text-to-speech system make announcements, and Whisper can take speech in and convert it to text. And the whole thing is just really coming along nicely, combined with this little $13 Atom Echo, which is an ESP home device. It's the size of a quarter, and it's got a little microphone and a little button, and you press it, and it becomes a voice command box to Home Assistant. And at $13, you could put these all over the house, and I've ordered two because <laughs> I'm going to start playing with it. Why not at that price? Yeah. They're also looking at, uh, in Chapter 4, wake word detection. So you could say computer, activate, or whatever they're going to have it be. Jarvis, obviously. Sure. Yours would be Jarvis. Mine would be computer. 
And it's coming along so nicely that I think with the August release of Home Assistant, I'm going to transition to using Assistant for all of my voice commands, all of that stuff that I'm doing, at least on the phone. Well, they did say it was the year of the voice, and they're making good on those promises. They really are delivering. It, I, I think that it's funny because with the parts that I'm actually the most excited about are Piper and Whisper. Because having open source, community-contributed text-to-speech and speech-to-text systems that are getting models and training from the Home Assistant community is going to be so beneficial to the open source community. Eventually, some Linux desktop developer is going to realize that this is just sitting out there. They could bang it out in a container in 15 minutes, and they could get a voice assistant built into the Linux desktop yeah. in a day. Just like I have that little you know, Siri orb up in the corner of my MacBook. Yeah. Why not have a Bixby orb? No, well, it's not Bixby, is it? It's- <laughs> a Tuxie. It's a, yeah. <laughs> a Tuxie. It's a little, a little Tux assistant, right? He comes up and you ask him to do things on your system. I, I don't know what you'd use it for, but it's there. It's low-hanging fruit, and it's something that's available to the open source community, and I'm really thrilled about it. And it's just so nice to actually see them executing on it. I was a little concerned when they announced this massive initiative that how would they pull this off? We've watched the Mycroft people fail. Uh, I mean, honestly, the Google Home and the Alexa devices are subpar devices. But they've really attacked this in a really practical way. And half a year in, we've really got some serious results that are usable now. I did a bit of tinkering with Home Assistant myself this week. For the longest time, I've been, when I drive up the hill by my house, which is a dead end, so there's almost never any traffic, there is a a little routine I do. I pick up my phone, I unlock my phone, and then... I press the Tailscale app to ju- make sure that my phone, you know, because it's just roamed off Wi-Fi or whatever. Right. And iOS is a turd about that. Yeah, is on the tail net. And then I open the Home Assistant app and scroll up about two thirds of the way down my primary home screen and press the <laughs> garage door button. Yeah. Okay. This sounds like something I've been doing for a while too. And it occurred to me the other day that I've been doing this for over a year. Why don't I automate it? What is wrong right. with me? <laughs> right. So then I started going down the rabbit hole of trying to automate just a simple button press on iOS. What I wanted was just an app on my home screen, one button that was always there, nothing, no extra swipes, no, no weirdness, just, I mean, the perfect thing would be for it to show up in CarPlay. I haven't quite gotten there yet. But what I have done is I've been able to create an iOS home screen, air quotes, app using iOS shortcuts. So this shortcut triggers a Home Assistant script on the back end. So you just create a very simple script in the Home Assistant UI, make a note of the name, because we'll use that later. So the iOS shortcut that I've written is is really straightforward. There's three steps. The first one is connect to your Tailscale network. So the shortcut does that by default, just in the background. It takes about five seconds. If it's not connected, it takes about half a second if it is. Do you see the Tailscale UI launch as it's doing that? Nope. Just in, all in the background. What you do see, and there is no way to... There, there was an iOS 16, but I'm running the, the iOS 17 beta. Uh, there is no way to hide the notification of the shortcut running. You can hide notifications for automations. This is a shortcut, which is a different thing for some reason. I don't know why, but it is. And you, you can't hide the notifications for those. So that's kind of annoying. But uh, once I've been uh, you know so that's step one once it's connected to tailscale uh, i then create a dictionary object and into that dictionary object i put uh, a single entity id 
So entity underscore ID. And then in the, so that's the key. And then the value is script dot toggle garage door, whatever you call yeah, it. Whatever you name the script. Okay. Exactly. So step two doesn't actually do anything. It just essentially creates a variable, a dictionary with, in this case, one item in it. So this is like the shortcuts term for how you make it a variable item that you can pass to something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, in theory, call that array and then reference items within that dictionary. You know, that's the kind of stuff that's going on here. And then the third step is the really simple bit. It's just call a home assistant service of script.toggle garage door uh, with data. And that's it. Uh, it just works. And then there's a button you can press uh, under the share sheet, which is add to home screen. And then it creates a little app icon that just sits on, on your on your home screen. You push the ah, button and it does the thing. I have done something similar using the Home Assistant widget on iOS now. And it's one of the buttons in the widget. Is, yeah. That's that's nice. That you, it's, so it's so how do you set the icon or can you set the icon? Is it you just can. the Home Assistant? Yeah, uh-huh. you can. Uh, so under... Let me just have a quick look there at the top. There's a little um, UI menu that, where you can rename it. And then another option is choose the mm. icon. So you can change the color. You can choose, you know, any pretty much any emoji. Uh, it's not like a full color emoji. It's like a almost like an MDI icon emoji okay. uh, options. And there's things like AirPods in there, stairs, you know, cows, you know, fish. <laughs> Do they have garage door? They have a car, which is good enough for me. Uh, so that's, that's what I picked. Yeah. That I need to do the same every morning when I'm coming to the studio, I turn on the smart plug. I, I, well, I do, I open up home assistant, which is persistently connected. Thanks to Android. I open up home assistant. I scroll to my office. I turn on my workstation, smart plug. I make sure the temperature is set correctly. And then I close home assistant. And I don't know why I don't just make that a script and a button. That's so obvious. I think what I'd like to do is in the automation section of iOS, try and trigger this based on a geo zone uh, and make make it like my neighborhood or something. I mean, the, the issue with that, though, and well, I'll trigger the automation with a do you want to yes or no Mm. option. Yeah. Or what about like after? What about if no motion was detected after a certain amount of time? It closes the door. Yeah, maybe like that could be it. Because I mean, sometimes I mean, I've got an air conditioner in my garage because that's my where I do all my woodworking. So quite often in the summer months, I am air conditioning that space because it's unbearable if I don't. So I I want the the door open for minimal amount of time possible. Right. So I mean, there's still some there's still some improvements to be made, and I I don't know how reliable the coming home geolocation of ios is it's probably pretty good but uh yeah it's been very useful for me linode.com slash ssh head on over there to support the show get 100 dollars in 60-day credit and check out the exciting news linode's now part of akamai all the developer-friendly tools like the cloud manager that's beautifully built the api well documented with lots of libraries ready to go and the cli i use on the daily The stuff I've used and you've used to build, deploy, and scale in the cloud, that's all still available. But now, it's combined with Akamai's power and global reach. They are the top-tier network, and they're expanding their services to offer more cloud computing resources and tooling, but making sure you still get that reliable, affordable, and scalable solution for yourself or a business of any size. And as part of Akamai's global network of offerings, their data centers are expanding worldwide, giving you access to more resources so you can grow your project or your business and serve more customers and more clients. So why wait? 
Go experience the power of Linode, now Akamai. Visit linode.com slash SSH. Go there to learn how Linode, now Akamai, can help scale your applications from the cloud to the edge, and you'll get $100 in 60-day credit while you support the show. It's a pretty sweet deal, and you can really kick the tires. Linode.com slash SSH. So in one of my intentional visits to Reddit, I still don't have a mobile client on my phone. Uh, I just go to the old.reddit.com. Uh, maybe once a day now at most, for just a couple of minutes. Uh, I saw a really interesting link uh, for an app called Link Warden. The idea behind this thing is it's a fully self-hostable, open-source, collaborative bookmark manager. And the really nice thing about it that sort of piqued my interest was that you can use it to collect and organize, but most importantly, archive web pages. And you kick the tires on that, Chris. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's totally accessible to everybody that wants to self-host. You have two routes. You can kind of build it yourself, which uh, is probably the safest, most secured way to go. It does take some time to build. There's also a community member out there that has made a Docker Compose. Now, the project themselves, Link Warden does intend, does plan, I should say, to to make a, a Docker image available. And I would imagine a Docker Compose along with that. But they don't have it yet. So depending on which route you take, there's a couple of different paths to get it self-hosted. It's not too bad overall. And a couple of things struck me that I like about it a lot. When you feed it a link, you have the option to kind of just give it the URL and tell it to go ahead and do the, do its thing. Or you can provide optional information like tags and categories and collection and a description and your own custom title if you want. And then it'll pull it in with all that extra information. Obviously, it's a good idea if you provide that extra information to organize it. Yeah. Once it's pulled that link in, it doesn't, what I expected, which I would like to see, is I click it and I get like a reader view of the contents of the website or some sort of cached, almost like archive.org, Wayback Machine style. That's not what you get. There is no viewing your saved web pages in Link Warden. But what you can do is view a screenshot that it took at the time you saved it. You can view it in the app or download it, or you can get a PDF version of the web page. And from an archival versioning standpoint, I really like that because there are news stories and there is one that is stuck in my craw now for two years where a big Linux vendor changed their website after they found out we were going to report on a story. And by the time we went public with the story, they had totally updated their website. And I kick myself to this day for not having an archive version of the original site that I could link people to. Unfortunately, Link Warden, as of right now, doesn't really have a way to share your saved results outside of just downloading the PDF and like I could share the PDF with Alex. But in my example I just gave, I would love if I have a public instance, like I put this up on a Linode, I'd love to be able to just give Alex a link to that entry and he could have like a an archived version that he could read in the thing, or he could download the PDF if he wanted to. Um, and then additionally, when you're looking at ways to like archive stuff that you're working on, like this is one of my number one primary use cases for something like Vault Warden or Wallbag or any of those is I'm I'm processing information. I want to save this perhaps for later. I want a book. I want like a bookmarklet, or I want a browser extension that'll just take what I'm reading, what I'm doing right now, suck it all into something, and save a complete version. There's no Link Warden browser extension or bookmarklet yet. So there's only manually adding URLs by hand by loading up the Link Warden UI, logging in, and then hitting the add URL thing, which 
is not very quick for like massively slamming stuff in there. It'd be nice to have those options. I think a a, a browser extension is also on their to-do list. I, I imagine it's probably not super easy. But if you want to collect certain, like if you want a bunch of car repair collections and you have recipe collections and you could put all these in here and it, it does present them in a very nice UI, if not minimum UI at this point. It's a really interesting idea, isn't it? Particularly with, uh, you know, Twitter going away or becoming X or whatever. Who, who's, I mean, the Internet Archive is an incredibly valuable resource, but we can't rely on it to be there forever, not necessarily. And, uh, you know, your your example of having a, a news story for, a, you know, a company's website that changed based on your reporting or prospective reporting, which is pretty shady, uh, you know, it. That we don't really have a very good way, other than just save as P, you know print and save as PDF right now to archive a website, which in this day and age feels a little out of touch. You know, so I had a look for a couple of other options in this space as well. Uh, whilst you were busy trying out Link Warden, now there's another one called LinkedIn. I tried to search for this; it kept trying to send me to LinkedIn. This actually is link, L-I-N-K, ding, D-I-N-G, like the bell. There we go. And this is yet another bookmark manager. Uh, It has a whole bunch of standard bookmark manager features, which I won't bore you with. You can probably figure out and guess what they are. But the one for me that really stood out was this one has the ability to automatically create snapshots of bookmark websites on the Internet Archive Wayback Machine. Ah, now that's useful. Huh. Obviously, it's in terms of a data sovereignty and having a, a locally cached copy. You know, it doesn't solve that particular problem, but your collaborative problem of you know putting something in the show notes and not having link rot happen to it over the next decade or two, uh, this could be a great solution. Yes, and you know the nice thing about having something that integrates with archive.org is then you make that snapshot available to everybody else too. It's not just your private little stash somewhere. Which, for my use case, might be fine, but if you think about it in a broader context, it'd be nice if everybody had a copy. And I did check the archive, <laughs> and it wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, LinkedIn, I like that. I think I'm going to be taking a look at that. And, of course, they have a very simple Docker Compose to get it going. I mean, you could, of course, use something like Firefox Sync and self-host that and sync your bookmarks around that way if you want to. But I think my kind of desire here is to have that kind of archival aspect of, you know, let's say I find a solution in a Reddit thread. I want to archive that Reddit thread today and then know that I can link to it, say, from my Obsidian Vault to a file path somewhere else and just, yes. just have it forever. Yeah. Now, I found another one which looked pretty interesting. It doesn't have any archival uh, aspects, which is a bit of a ding against it for now, but uh, who knows where they'll take the project in future. And this one's called Flocus, F-L-O-C-C-U-S. I swear developers just make names to troll people like you and me that have to say them out loud. I I know they should all be forced to pronounce them out loud and put the recording up on their website if they're going to choose a crazy name. It's like Flockus, like kind of a bit like Meet the Fockers, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This is nice because you can use Nextcloud bookmarks, Google Drive, or any WebDAV compatible service to sync your bookmarks around between Firefox, Chrome, Edge, Opera, Brave, Vivaldi, and Safari is coming soon because it uses web extensions to do that. So it has Android apps as well. There's a bunch of other stuff uh, that's, that looks pretty neat in there. That's pretty handy if you already have Nextcloud. 
or it says here Google Drive would work or any web dev compatible service. It'll sync. Basically, it syncs your bookmarks between your browsers and any browser that supports, you know, the standard web extensions. So if you've, I mean, this is me, man. I've got Firefox. I've got Chrome. I've got fricking Edge. Uh, and I got Nextcloud Bookmarks app installed. So you're nailing it today. Well, we are recording this episode a week early because next week, as we record, I'll be in Chicago for DevOps days. So I hope that we all had a lovely meetup on the Thursday night. Yeah, I hope I heard a bunch this. of great stories, Alex. Right? I, I bet I did. It was probably a lot of fun. And I bet I really wished I was there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, time travel, hey? Time maths. I would make a very poor Doctor Who. Let's put it that way. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Go check it out right now and get a free personal account for up to 100 devices, and it's a great way to support the show. So it's Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Now, Tailscale is a solution for a team of any size, an individual or a large enterprise that just doesn't want to have to deal with the annoying old-style VPN systems that are costly and complicated to maintain. What Tailscale does is it uses WireGuard to create a mesh network between your resources. It lets you easily build out in minutes per device a network that's flat and talks directly to each other using WireGuard's noise protocol. It's perfect for those of us that like to self-host. You can put your services all on your tailnet. And you don't need to bother with port forwarding on your firewall or if your ISP doesn't allow a certain inbound port because it's all private traffic now. And each device, like your phone or your tablet or a VPS or your desktop computer, it doesn't matter what the OS is because they support ARM and Intel and just the whole range out there. And they give you great tooling, too, like Tailscale Send, which is sort of like AirDrop, I guess, but for all of your devices on your Tailnet. doesn't matter their OS. Or Tailscale SSH, which lets you log in to all of your Tailscale devices. There's a lot more, too. Alex and I use it to share resources between our networks, so when we're trying something out for the show... We share it over Tailscale, and then I just put his DNS domain name in, put his port in, boop, goes over Tailscale, all protected by WireGuard. It's so elegant and so easy. It's going to change your networking game, so support the show and try it for 100 devices for free on a personal account. Just go to tailscale.com slash self-hosted. That's it, and you get started for 100 devices right there, tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Meanwhile... Uh, I thought it might be a good idea to give you all an app pick to kind of bring you back down to earth after that. I uh, I found an app that lets you browse IMDb in the terminal. Now, why would you want to? Well, actually, IMDb doesn't have the best website anymore. This is kind of brilliant. It just turns everything into a big end curses directory. Well, that's just it. I mean, some people live in the terminal, Chris. Like, yeah, yeah that's some true. people use i3. Some people use XFCE. You know, some people uh, do some things that I don't understand. You exposed that to me. I didn't even call you out, but you exposed it to me when you showed me your Nix config and I saw XFCE in there. I was aghast. But then I thought about it. And I <laughs> I understand. I understand. I just wanted a lightweight desktop for the server. Because yeah, that's I'm not, what I figured. I'm not actually going to use it. Right. Uh, but this, this thing, IMDB for the terminal is pretty cool. It's written in Ruby. And so I thought, right, I'm on my MacBook. Why don't I try this out? Oh, hold on a minute. I've got Nick's shell because I'm now a Nick's guy. I don't know if I mentioned that recently. By the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I went down the rabbit hole of trying to get this app running with Nick's shell. So it's very easy to do. You just type the command Nick's space shell and then pick your package repo. So in my case, unstable. Put a hashtag in there and then Ruby so that I end up dumped into 
almost like a cheroot, but not. It's like a it's like a virtual environment if you're a Python guy. It's a bit bit like that. You get dumped into this virtual environment, which is a Nix shell with whatever packages you requested installed. In my case, it was Ruby. Then I did gem install IMDB terminal. It pulled down everything without having Ruby installed on my host system. I'll just remind you. And then I was able to follow the instructions in the application itself. Now, it does ask you to sign up for a API scraping service. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to actually test this out. So I'm just relying on the screenshots for this episode because the scraping API is 19 bucks a month in the cheapest option, which I love you all, but that's a lot just to test something out for fun. This whole Nix shell thing, when I realized that that app wasn't going to be the one for me, I just pressed control C, control D to come out of the, uh, the environment. And then I tried to type Ruby just to see what would happen. It was as if it never happened. It was amazing. We did get lots of feedback on my inability to understand flakes and some people empathizing with me to say, yes, they are really difficult. And thank you for saying it out loud because I felt like I was the stupid one. No, we're stupid together. Don't worry. It's all fine. Uh, I had a few people send me their configs, examples and stuff over the weekend. And uh, some of those were really helpful, actually. Some people on the Discord helped me out a bunch. And I I think I just about understand flakes now. I've just about got there. It was really, really painful to get there. Could you explain it like I'm five? No. Okay. So that's still that step. I no. It, my, my now vague understanding of them, and it is very vague, because the I think Nix probably has one of the steepest learning curves in all of computer science, ge- genuinely. Maybe becoming a software developer in the beginning, learning your first programming language is harder. Yeah. But it's, Some of those early BSDs, I imagine, were pretty rough. But modern yeah. day computing systems, I think it's definitely one of the most complex. Yeah, what's been really interesting is uh, I just um, started at my new job uh, yesterday as we record. And I mentioned to my new boss that I'd just taken my brand new MacBook out of the box 30 minutes before our intro call. Like I had nothing installed on it. I had to do all the iCloud setup, all that kind of nonsense. I ran my Nix install uh, command. So I ran the determinate systems Nix installer, then downloaded the zip file from GitHub of my Mac OS GitHub repo. Then I had to run uh, Nix build darwin config whatever it was about 10 or 15 minutes later i came back because it was downloading all of my mac app store apps it was downloading all of my brew apps how does it get the authorization to icloud to log in and get those it can pull them down without having to open up the app store ui yeah oh goodness that's so wonderful there's a binary called mas which lets you interact with the mac app store through the the command line ah yes i've seen that going crazy in the background while it's updating apps before Mm -hmm. oh interesting and so, you know, the promise of Nix is is real. I went from a box fresh laptop to all of my apps installed, including iStat menus configuration files in place, iTerm configuration files in place. All of my shell stuff was there. The only things I've had to do really was log into a whole bunch of stuff, which you can't really automate that, I don't think. The promise is real. It is amazing when you get there. So Nix on Mac OS sounds like it adds some real serious utility to Mac OS because honestly, a new Mac can take at least a day to get your core stuff set up because you got to download, you got to log into everything. It's true. Go through all the settings. Yeah, man, that's a that's a mess. So how much I mean, all with the downloads and all that. What do you think the total time was? 
Well, I went from box fresh and I joined at nine oh five or something when I sat at my desk, and I joined the call with my boss at nine thirty two, just two minutes late. Who I was panicking a little. <laughs> uh, so what's that? Uh, Twenty seven minutes end to end. Man, that makes that makes me really really think. I should try that on the Linux side too. Because so what I do right now is I use Nix to just get the base system up. But I like to experiment every build. So I, I haven't really wanted to come up with like a prescribed installation on Linux. But on the Mac, it's such a utility for me. If I'm using a Mac, it's like four or five apps tops. And I could totally see it working there. Well, I mean, this can do stuff like rewrite system default preferences. So things mm. like moving my dock to the left disabling the app icon bouncing in the dock, minimizing to app icon. It changes screensaver time preferences. It changes all these little things, tap to click, it enables tap to click, all these little things that I remember to do over the next six weeks as I settle into this Mac and make it my own. I've now got in a configuration file and I'll never have to remember them ever again. I just run, I run my just file. I literally, all I have to type is just when I'm in the Git repo and it does everything for me just do it and i'll tell you the, my absolute favorite feature besides you know the, the whole overall holistic solution fuzzy finder integration on control r for reverse search where has that been all my life <laughs> oh my goodness yeah oh i'm really happy and of course um you're not just using it on mac os to make it clear to the listener uh we've been chatting off air about redoing some of the JB infrastructure with Nix, including jupiterbroadcasting.com eventually, and, you know, really kind of using it everywhere. And you could, you could absolutely start using the Nix package manager on, you know, Fedora or CentOS or whatever you're on Ubuntu today. But the nice thing I really like about using Nix OS as my server platform is it's, it's a real MVP, just a minimum viable platform. Like my Odroid at home, I have zero, zero, concerns about just doing the system updates because it's like the basic stuff you need to get it, it it could almost just be a container itself it's the basic runtimes you need for a linux system to manage it and containers and the containers are isolated from the system and so and the since the nix os updates are transactional and i can roll back i just keep that base minimum rolling linux environment that's always up to date i like to go some of the more newer kernels since i'm on an odroid and i I just roll that all the time and I, I can even, I haven't done it yet, but I've considered just sending it to automatic and that the separation of the two with a secure up-to-date declarative base that is reproducible instantly. And my containerized applications has been the ultimate home self-hosted solution I've ever had. And I like it so much. I, I, I also am very interested in applying it to the JB infrastructure. Took me a while to get there, huh? I'm still not quite at Wes's ninja level of, you know, GitHub actions of tearing down entire environments quite yet, but I think I'll get there. It's funny with Wes because some stuff bounces off him. You know, we talk about a lot of things, but this one, it's like every week I can tell he's gone further down the rabbit hole. And you've probably noticed Nick's folks come out of the woodwork. They're all out there. They do. Yes. First day at new job. I mentioned to my boss that I'd just run Nix, and he's like, oh, take a look at my Nix, uh, my Nix repo, and I do a whole bunch of cool stuff. Like, he is next level from me, which isn't difficult, honestly, but he's extremely far down the rabbit hole of uh, of Nix. We were talking about how to add nodes programmatically with uh, Nix config to your tailnet for Tailscale, obviously. We can't do it yet. Well, I can't promise anything at all, but we want it to happen at some point in the future, you'd be able to just add an auth key into your Nix config, and that will automatically add that node 
to your tailnet. Yeah, I could see that being useful one day for uh, headless systems like Raspberry Pis and or my Odroid, which I it would it would totally have no or, monitor at all. Or GitHub Actions. Imagine running a GitHub yes. Action and then pushing to a remote server over your tailnet, for example, or a VPS image. You know, a custom VPS image that you just deploy and it's in there. The possibilities are endless. Yeah. Well, I'm excited that you're enjoying it and uh, kind of curious to see how far down the rabbit hole you do end up going. And the thing that I like about your journey is I really, I know Wes has done some and he's really been liking it, but I have done very little nicks on Mac OS. I just haven't been on Mac OS much recently. But when I, when I do switch back for something, I often, you know, I have a MacBook that I'll fire up from time to time. I think I got to try this. This sounds like it makes mac os a lot less irritating because the number one frustrations i have are updates and how long it takes to get a system set up and i i've noticed even with a really fancy m1 max this mac os install and all the apps are way slower than they were when that machine was new things like like the number one thing was nothing everything launched instantly when i got that machine it logged in it booted up instantly i'd click on an app icon in the dock and there wouldn't be a bounce because the application would be instantly launched and i was like wow these m1s are so nothing runs like that anymore installs like two years old apps take you know four five six bounces now it's just like the old Macs. and so wiping it and then starting fresh but then having this system to help set it all up or at least get you know 90 percent the way there that makes it a lot more manageable now, I'm still, you know, tinkering with this every day. So by the time you listen to this, it's highly likely that this repo will have changed at least some. But I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This is just my Nix Mac OS testing repository. This is where I'm kind of hacking around and, and figuring out stuff. So take a look if you're a Nix person and tell me what I did wrong. I would love to know genuinely as a learning opportunity. How about some quick follow up on my jellyfin drama that I talked about last week? Yeah, you did stir up some feelings in the feedback sack. <laughs> Daniel wrote into that sack in episode 102. He said, you talked about abandoning the movie experience because Jellyfin had crapped out. This is happening to me relatively often. Some files just don't seem to seek properly on Jellyfin, AVI files, for example. So I have two backup options. Number one, you can copy the stream URL from the menu and then open it in VLC. You have to seek manually to where you're at, but that'll work. Number two, if all else fails, you could just download the file and play it locally. It's a slightly bigger pause in the movie, but it's not super bad and at least guarantees the movie either plays or the file itself is actually broken. Uh, he says, I don't usually get too much sass from the family, but it's rough to be in that spot. Do you do that thing where when a file doesn't play in, let's say, Jellyfin in this case, you go to Plex and it doesn't play there? And you're like, right, I'm going to try Cody. And if it doesn't play in Cody, yeah. God damn it, it broken it's bad yeah cody yeah cody you know is like the go-to can play everything also like if it doesn't play in the web browser i'll sometimes you know that'll be a red flag that's usually where i'll pull it down at that point and yeah. just try a local playback but you know in this case i was playing it on the apple tv and there's not a lot of great options there is actually vlc for the apple tv but i'm not i don't know how i'd actually get the file in there i thought about this a lot and i decided to turn plex back on i still have jellyfin but I decided to also turn Plex on because we're starting a new show, 12 Monkeys. We also just watch other shows, and I still haven't gotten adequate intro skipping. And I know this sounds silly, but we're watching Who's the Boss, for example, just like at dinner. It's got a minute five intro. And it's got, you know, you're watching that every time you're, it's just, you want to skip that. And Plex has also added credit skipping. But then the real final 
kind of nail in the coffin for me was just about every day or two, the Swift Fin app, God bless, new app since early days, it loses my server entry information and all of my login information. And I have to go through and retype in my server address and re-log in with my account uh, almost every other day or two. That kind of stuff is a real paper cut and just adds it's up. Old. Adds up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the tvOS experience is still not quite what I want. And then the thing that really put me over back for Plex for now, I don't know when, but at some point when I was on Jellyfin or something, Plex added cross Plex server watch syncing. My God, Alex. Like, yes, because I have a huge cache on one server of everything. And I have a subset in the RV. And every now and then I'm down at the studio and I want to watch that same show. And I have to remember to go between all of them and mark everything red. And if I'm watching on Plex and Jellyfin, I'm now like doing it in three different places. And it's absolutely bonkers. So the fact that they added watch status syncing between Plex instances solves a huge problem for me. And I, I maybe there's a way I could do that manually or with a plugin on Jellyfin, but it's just a checkbox on Plex. And that's just really nice. Convenience is worth something. You know, your time is worth something. And uh, I think I've, you know, I'm, I still remain impressed with, with Jellyfin from what we, we tried from earlier in the year. Especially, I think, if you're just using the web version, no complaints, really. But I'm going to have a bunch more travel coming up uh, soon. And I still didn't figure out a good remote access solution other than Tailscale, which is probably fine. I haven't actually tried to stream over a Tailnet video. I have on my phone, even over cellular from Jellyfin, and it worked well. It's been really good in a lot of ways. That's why I'm going to leave it running, and I'm going to keep using it myself to keep tabs on it. And then when we're doing it with the family, they're just going to use Plex for now. Yeah. I mean, Plex, the, the, that credit skip thing is cool, but it's also really annoying, the way it kind of just minimizes the content in the corner. Uh, The way it, yeah, I don't know. Netflix style, you know, streaming sites do that too. I would, no, I would prefer just a little skip credits yeah. button to pop up not the whole ui takeover it does but yeah i agree it's neat that it can do it you know and it's funny because when you fire up plex and it's been a while since i had plex running it has to go through everything and extract chapter images and detect intros and detect credits like they they are doing a lot of grunt work there and i can understand why jellyfin has been trying to come up with the right approach because you'll bake a box while plex goes through and does all that well, it's not quite as bad as when you um, batch upload a bunch of files to image, though. That will bake a box. <laughs> yeah. 45homelab.com. It's happening. Big, strong, fast storage servers with high performance, high capacity, and affordable for all data requirements. Personal-grade solutions that are ideal for your business or your home lab. Go learn more at 45drives.com, right? That's where you get your enterprise drives. Everybody knows about 45 Drives. And you might remember episode 98 of the Self-Hosted Podcast, their mission where they talked about the way they see the storage market and the vision for future products. That, it clicked with us. The home lab opportunity to us seems immense. They listen to the feedback from the podcast, and they're cooking up 45homelab.com. I think it's going to be right up your alley, so go check it out. I think you guys will also like that 45 Drives maintains an open design and ongoing relationship with the open source community. And we love the dedicated engineering team that's ready to help you should you ever need it. 
So go learn how 45 Drives does things differently and visit 45drives.com. And when you get a chance, tell them the self-hosted podcast sent you. And remember, they're cooking up something great just for our audience at 45homelab.com. You're going to love it. That's where you go. 45homelab.com. Question for you from Anon Bob. He asks, is there a way to get chapter markers in Podverse? I keep trying to switch from Pocket Casts, and every time I do, the other apps just don't quite measure up. Yeah, Pocket Casts is, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's a good app. What's your, Alex, what's your podcast app of choice these yeah, days? Yeah, Pocket Casts. Yeah. Yeah, it's classic. Um, So there is two ways to do chapters in podcasts right now. One is kind of a hack that the Germans came up with, God bless, that uh, sort of crams it into the ID3 tag, and that works. And that's what we've been using for years. Another is called Cloud Chapters, which is a standardized sort of JSON file that you put up on an HTTP endpoint that allows you to put metadata in there like links. So a chapter can also be a link. You could have images for that chapter. So like when we're talking about Home Assistant, we could have the Home Assistant blog post screenshot up there or something like that. Two different standards. Podverse follows the latter, which is the more modern standard. If they had time or a contributor, they would probably accept a patch that would allow Podverse to read the old ID3 standard because it just it just needs to be scrubbed and parsed properly. The issue is there is that because there's no standard on how that chapter data is actually kind of crammed into the ID3 tag space, it sometimes is formatted in wonky ways that'll break the player. So you have to do a lot of kind of catching there, which Pocket Cast has just had years to do. But Podverse would need somebody to kind of write that code and, and uh, submit it in. Um, or we need to get off our butts and make podcasting 2.0 chapters. That could be done overnight if our hosting platform, Fireside, just did it properly. Or, or it could be done if we started producing our own RSS feeds, which inevitably will happen if our platform providers don't keep up. So that's a long answer, right? But it's more complicated than you'd think, I suppose. Often is. Infrastructure often is. Yeah, it is. We got some great boosts, even though we're early into the cycle. We got a lot of great boosts, and JJ Style is our baller this week with 40,000 sats. And he was coming in from the Podcast Index website. He says, congratulations and good luck, Alex, with the new job. We got a lot of that this week. Yeah, thank you. He also wanted to send us a plus one on fresh RSS. Says, I've looked at Wallbag, but settled for LinkedIn in the end. Deployment was simple with Docker. It exposes an RSS feed. Oh, that is nice. And my favorite thing, it has a browser extension that injects and matches alongside the search results on DuckDuck or Googs. If the search keywords match any of the tags, you, you give an article, which is super helpful, or finding old blog posts, stack overflows, and you can't remember them or the exact order of words that you entered a year ago. Yeah, you still get the perfect search results. That's nice. That is amazing. That is incredible. Have you ever run over one of your old forum posts when you've been Googling for an issue? Yes, it's so funny. And you're I like, like a robot I when solved I do that. this problem four years <laughs> yes. ago. Why am I solving it again today? Uh, so this is funny. It's funny. This but is yes. protecting future Alex from himself. Thank you very right. much for the suggestion. Oh, JJ's not going to be able to make it to Chicago. He's going to be there in October. So, uh, well, you mean he was he was there last night as this airs next week as we record, but last night as it we, airs. We should have <laughs> we should have thought of a Chicago chat room. Didn't even occur to me. Uh, um. Also agrees with you on the F1 TV DRM. It's no good. So, okay, next time we do a meetup for something like that, we should totally make a chat room. This is too late at this point, but lesson learned on that one. That is. Well, I think we. I think we will. I think we have done. We have created it, right? Wink, wink. And then we're gonna we're gonna talk about it in the lap that aired last week. 
God, this this time maths is so confusing. Yeah, that can still work out. Yeah, okay. Yes, you are correct. See, you are you are good at time math. You see, you maybe you would make a good doctor. Uh, maybe. Would I be the Rick and Morty scrotum guy, the time cop, though? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe better than Rick. Let's think about. It. He's pretty miserable. Yep. Cr- hopefully, Cranky Danny isn't. He comes in with twenty thousand sats using fountain. Dear Chris and Alex, in the episode last recent uh, in one hundred and two. You seem not to be able to find a downside for using NixOS, but I want to present you with a dilemma that I unfortunately can't solve. In the time of exploits and vulnerabilities, is the trade-off of not having SE Linux or AppArmor really worth it? Same dilemma with the less revolutionary immutable next-gen systems like Blend. Thanks for your insights. I'll probably boost this into up as well. That's a good question. Well, I would have felt duty-bound as a Red Hat employee last month to say, yes, SE Linux is fantastic and you should use it on all the things. But uh, the reality is I haven't run out on any of my personal systems ever. I've I've had to use it at work and, you know, uh, in, in cloud environments, it's probably not a bad idea. And, and certainly government t- sort of systems typically mandate those kinds of access controls to secure areas of the kernel and you know bits of the of the system that you maybe should or should not have access to the reality is though the world of computing has moved on in my opinion significantly from when se linux was created not to say it's not still useful in certain scenarios because it absolutely is but these immutable oss that you talk about are the solution they have read only file systems for the most part so yes, you can still access that data. You know, let's let's suppose you've found some exploit to get onto the shell of this box, for example. You can still read the file system and still probably do a bunch of stuff that SE Linux might stop you from doing. But the minute that server gets rebooted, you've lost all of that stuff. And one of the uh, solutions I've seen um, batted around from security folks of how to sort of work around this is just have a, a policy that rebuilds these boxes every seven days. You know, have a rolling rebuild policy in Kubernetes clusters and just have these nodes be genuinely, I know some people in the audience are going to be triggered, cattle versus pets, all that stuff. Just take the VM out the back and shoot it in the head. You know, that's that's the solution here. That is the ultimate solution. Also, I know it's absolutely possible, but I would love, and this is something I'd totally be down for doing if somebody had some insights on how to pull this off correctly. I'd love to expose a Nixbox to the internet and see what people could do to it malware-wise. Because if you download a binary, a Linux binary on a Nixbox, it won't run. You can't execute it, right? It's it, it doesn't know anything about its environment. So you'd have to have malware or an infiltrator that was familiar with Nix OS and how to sort that out. And I wonder if that complexity in itself wouldn't eliminate a good chunk of malware that might land on that box. I mean, a sufficiently you know, motivated actor. Let's, for sure. For let's sure. say, you know, it's a financial banking system and there are stock trades at play and, you know, it's it's quite popular in, in the fintech sector, Nix, Nix OS. You know, if you're sufficiently motivated, you could figure out how to create your own Nix environment and Nix shell and do all that stuff. But most of the time, these vulnerabilities are targeting the lowest hanging fruit, the boxes that have port 3389 left over, left open. Or they're, re- they're replacing a standard binary that you might execute and they're, you know, they're, 
they're adding a root executable bit to it and then you're running that and it's secretly getting root privileges and it's actually been a compromised version of grep or something like that but again that wouldn't work in nix so it, i would love to just test it so largely my answer is se linux still relevant it's a yes no but yeah answer you know it, it really does depend and uh for all the reasons we just talked about yeah, it does still have a place in the world but i do think its role is diminishing. There is a working group for NixOS to bring SE Linux to NixOS, but it doesn't seem like it's had much momentum, but there is kind of a beta way to get it working, it seems. I don't know if I'd rely on it. You imagine being on that working group and, and scraping some statistics of how many people just, the first thing they do when they get on a box is SE Linux disable, SE status disable. <laughs> uh, you know, it's gotten better, but yep. Uh-huh. Uh, we got a few more. User 6967 came in with 15,000 sats using Fountain. Because we need more NixOS coverage, he writes, I just enabled Flakes yesterday to pull down a bash script. My experience mirrored yours, Alex. Here is hoping the community works it out soon. Just keep bashing your head against that brick wall, and it will eventually go in. You know, it's... Uh... <laughs> is that all it takes? Once I've got a little further down this road, I, I really do intend on creating some educational content around this. I know there are lots of people that have done similar already, but I feel like a lot of them miss the mark and miss the point of, of the reason they created that content is it's almost like when, you know, we, we founded Linux server all these years ago where we, people assumed that you had all this base Linux knowledge when actually people coming into the Docker ecosystem back then at least, it was maybe to a certain point now even, were there because Docker's solved so many of the packaging problems and scripting problems and all the rest of it. Nicks and Flakes and all the rest of it, they're doing the same thing now. Okay, they were doing it back then too. We just didn't know about it. So there does need to be some massive improvements in the approachability of this subject. And if I can be part of that, then I will be. I think that's a good insight. I, I want to plus one everything you just said. Faraday Fedora came in with a row of ducks to talk about uh, using the WiseCam as a baby monitor, which came up last week. He says, I use the RTSP firmware, and then I open up those feeds into VLC. I do that as well. Uh, but he goes on to say, I don't think you need to worry about something that monitors the breathing or the heart rate, because a lot of the PJ patterns make the compression algorithm break down, and that lets you know they're okay. <laughs> Just the movement and detection stuff, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a great solution for, like, the mom. Well, I, I tell you, if you are a podcaster or tangentially related to one, you could take your nice, expensive, sensitive, dynamic microphone, put it underneath the crib and turn <laughs> the gain way up and listen to that, because we've definitely done that on nights before. There you go. Yeah, microphone is not a bad way to go at all, really. Yeah. Just get a very long XLR cable. Yeah. <laughs> P.S. Schmidt comes in with 6,969 sats. Listening to 102, you mentioned uh, the re renaming entities in Home Assistant. Yes. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. He said, uh, it could be made easier. It reminded me that I wrote a script a while back that renames entities in bulk. It supports custom naming formats and filtering by manufacturer and integration. It's on GitHub under P.S. Schmidt, and he has a link that we will include in the show notes. He also says congratulations to you, Alex, for the new job. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for that. That is probably exactly what I'm looking for, Schmidt. I appreciate that. Smart growth comes in again. 5,000 sats using Fountain. I think he wants to use Tailscale. He seems like it's, he says it seems like an incredible solution. He's happy to be inside the free tier zone and maybe even pay, but uh, he is concerned about 
the single sign-on options only being major enterprises. He doesn't want to have to have a big enterprise account to log into Tailscale. He wants to meet in the middle and use a different solution. Then you're looking for the custom OIDC providers. This lets you use a custom domain name um, so that Tailscale can integrate with providers that support OpenID Connect. There you go. And they have some documentation on their website about that as well. And we'll put a link to a blog post in the show notes. How was right? actually schooled me on uh, how to link to my Noster ID. He did find me, so I will be able to put that in the show notes. And he had a little Flakes wisdom. He says, I've been using Flakes with Nix, but it did take me a while to feel comfortable with it. And I've even developed software in the past. I just think that Flakes can be used for the main NixOS with just a few files. Maybe take a look at how the OpenZFS NixOS guide does the Flake setup. The NixOS Flake repo isn't as complicated as others. And he links us to that and it's kind of an example. I get, oh, yeah. Oh, that's like six, seven lines of code. That's really simple. Minimal NixOS root on ZFS config. That's slick. And you you know what? Now that you get that, oh, God, that's great. Thank you, Hal. Appreciate that. It is, it is nice, but I think you've just got to stare at this problem for a while. It's one of those, you know, you've got to understand how the data gets passed around between the modules. And, you know, it's not an object orientated language so yeah things just work differently it just takes a while to load that into my system memory you know yeah and, and formatted proper properly you know erock boosted in to say that we missed a great title nixon match oh, oh we, that was it that is a good one and gene bean has a boost in 4444 sats to say that uh, they use the angel care movement monitor that also track temperature there's no camera. And then later on, he added a unified G3 instant camera for his baby monitoring. There you go. That's pretty great. Thank you, everybody. Those are, and he'll, he also included a link to the Angel Care baby monitoring product that he uses that monitors for breathing with a wireless sensor pad. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes too for you new dads out there. We had 14 total boosters. 18 boosts all across, though. Some people send in multiple boosts for a total of 137,935 sats. Thank you, everybody. If you didn't hear your boost read and it was a big one and you think, why didn't they read it? It could be because we're recording early, although not every single boost makes it onto the show, but we do appreciate all of them and we save them, all of them, in our show notes and in our group chat. Thank you, everybody. If you want to boost in, you can get a new podcast app and get those new chapter titles and stuff like that, newpodcastapps.com, or keep your app. Maybe you want to use Pocket Cast. And just get Albie, getalbie.com, top it off with the Cash App or directly, and then head over to the Podcast Index website and find us over there. And you can just use the web. It's pretty easy, and we appreciate the support. And we do get people asking us, can they support us with the old-school fiat currencies as well? If you want to do that, you can go to selfhosted.show slash SRE and join up to our membership. We do an ad-free feed over there with a post-show as well. Yeah, we really love our members. You are a rock. Thank you, everybody. And don't forget about meetups when they're coming up and when we're doing pre-records and all that, you can always just kind of keep in the loop by joining our meetup page, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. And the word is I'm going to be responsible for a lot of cooking at Linux Fest Northwest. So I may Ooh. have to recruit your skills too, Alex, because it's going to be, we're going to be the lunch providers for potentially thousands of people. Is cheese bacon going to be there? <laughs> I hope so. We got to reach out. We, yeah, we got to get them booked. <laughs> we need someone to cook those brats at the front we of the gotta line. We got to get huh? to the front of the line. <laughs> 
You can get a selfhosted.show slash contact if you'd like to get in touch with us that way. And you can find all of my online places at alex.ktz.me. You can always chat in our Discord. We have that linked on our website. Or you can hang out in our self-hosted matrix. That's also linked on the website or over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. You can come say hi to me in there. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was selfhosted.show slash 103.